It's great to see all of you guys. I want to begin with a, uh, a moment of interaction, a, a question that will require some response from you, so this should be advantageous. What is your favorite part of creation? The sunset, okay? So who, who agrees with the, uh, just a nice sunset? We got any agreement there, okay? Okay, seven of us like sunsets. Um, what else? What else we got? Your favorite part of creation? Mountains, okay? Any, any mountain fans? Mountain fans. What else? What else we got? Your favorite part of... Say that. The ocean, okay? All right. Any other ocean folks here? All right. Uh-huh. There we go. Uh, your spouse? Is that what I heard? Okay. Fair enough. It'd be weird if we agreed with that because... Oh, what'd you say? You didn't say spouse. Snakes? Space. Oh, not your spouse, not snakes, but space. I see, I see. Totally different things, right? Uh, whoever said space, have you been there, or is it just kind of from afar? Okay, cool. I don't know if you were one of those, like, rich folks that was able to afford the, the helicopter to the moon thing, you know? Okay. A- any other? One, one more, maybe? Don Brown, what's your favorite part of creation? Come on, Don. Donnie B. Food? <laughs> We couldn't have planned it any better, brother. That's good. So I want to tell you guys two of my favorites. Uh, they're more uh, moments than they are uh, like scenery, although it certainly involves scenery. Um, so, I, and I've talked about a couple of these things before, but man, when, when I'm on a ski lift and like you're, you're going up the mountain and it's like there are no sounds in the world. Anyone who's ever been on a ski lift before, you've had that moment, okay? Like no one's skiing underneath you. Maybe you're going through the trees. You can't hear the lift in front of you or behind you, and no one's blabbing. It's like you're sitting there with all of your warm stuff on, and it is just absolutely silent. And there's just something in me in that moment. I'm just like, like maybe this is how it, it's supposed to be. Like this is just peaceful. This is restful. Um, then one time I heard about uh, the movie where like, the folks get stranded on the, the, the lift, and then they jump down, and wolves. Anyway, so the, it, it kind of ruins it, like, if you go that route. But um, <laughs> my other moment is, uh, is, yes, on a beach. And just let's, let's kind of let's, let's have some warm fuzzies here together, okay? So you're on the beach, okay? And uh, your toes are kind of, you know, like tucked in the sand. You're a little bit worried about creatures, but... You get over it, you know, your toes are kind of down in there, and you're all by yourself, and like just the crash of the waves, right? Like no one's yelling, no one's talking, it's just like you and God rushing this tide in. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, creation is a marvelous thing. Uh, it's amazing, too, to talk with folks who have had maybe one of their first encounters with God around creation. In other words, there's certain times, right, where you back away and you're like, like, how can you not believe in a God? How, how could you believe that, that like, the, this grandeur, this beautiful scene just all of a sudden exploded and was there? Like, it's so much more fun to trust that there is a creative creator. Um, here's my guess, though. Tonight, um, every single one of us have this opportunity to see creation in a brand new light. We're going to study what is admittingly, and I've said this many times in the past, one of my favorite passages, series of texts in the scripture, okay? 
Colossians 1, 15 to 23. We're going to take three weeks in it, okay? So we're only going to get through three of the verses tonight. Uh, it's one, it was one of the first passages that I ever memorized. The subtitle is The Supremacy of Christ. And so if you've been coming to Matthias and you've been wondering, like, why do these people talk about Jesus so much? Like, what, why don't they just, like, help me or, or give me self-esteem? Or why are they always saying that Jesus is the answer to every problem? Tonight, you're going to continue to get an idea of why Matthias is a Christ-centric church. Okay? We are not a man-centered church. We are a Christ-centered church. And so tonight, we're going to continue to build the doctrine of why that is. And I pray that every single one of us leave with a different picture of creation. Sound good? Sound like a party? All right. So let's pray. We'll rock and roll. And the six of you that thought that was a party will do it. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, for what you've created. I pray tonight, God, that your scripture um, sinks deep into our hearts, that folks who have come here, God, battling, folks that have come here doubting, folks that have come here struggling, and folks that have uh, entered this room with uh, numerous um, amounts of joy, I just, I pray that in all facets, God, that you would reign supreme. Show us yourself in a powerful way in your great and holy name. And all of God's people shouted, come on, amen. amen. All right, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now, we have um, just started uh, studying this. This is week 4 in Colossians. You can see we're already to verse 15. Man, we're on a rapid pace, okay? Um, I've told you guys before, Paul writes this letter uh, to a city called Colossae. It's a city that he's never been to. Uh, this is a city that is uh, in danger, They're in danger because there is some heresy that Paul has heard is beginning to make its way to the city. They're newer believers, and so their their faith is fragile, we could say. And so Paul, from a prison cell, probably in Rome, writes this letter uh, encouraging these young believers to stay strong in their faith. And then he gets to this unbelievable section that my subtitle says, The Supremacy of Christ. So here we go, verse 15. We're going to read it all, 15, 16, and 17 And then we'll have some fun. He is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and the scripture says for him. And finally, verse 17, with a massive punch, and he is before all things, and in him All things hold together. This is one of those passages where I feel like we could just say, have a good night. Like, like it's enough just reading it. Like, you just read this text. I just read this text, and I'm just like, like, do we need to do anything else with this, right? But we will, okay? Here we go, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's all kinds of thoughts about about what this means, about what Paul is alluding to. Uh, this is a, a battle for so many of you. How can I believe in a God that, that I cannot see? How can I trust in a God that I cannot hold? And so when you hear in talking about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, we have to wrestle with the, the connotations of that. Okay. Um, is it that Jesus came to show us what God looks like? Right? So next slide. So maybe some of you guys like, like did Jesus just show up? So that all of us could think that, that God looks like a man with a pretty solid beard and phenomenal flowing Fabio hair. And when you watch the Jesus film, you know, there's always like a fan outside of the camera that's like blowing his hair in the wind, you know. Um, 
Often, oftentimes, uh, uh, the, the pictures of Jesus are, are fairly weak sauce. Uh, they, they, they paint him as a feeble, weak man. Um, in general, the, the carpenters that I know are rarely feeble and rarely weak. And for him to survive on the cross as long as he did, taking deep breaths and pulling himself up, I just want to say, I'm not sure if he went to club fitness in Jerusalem, but I'm saying that I don't think Jesus was as weak and feeble as, the, as uh, some of the pictures portray. So was that why Jesus shows up? Does he show up to, to give us an understanding of maybe what God looks like? So that from afar or until we wait to see him in glory, we can have this mental image and somehow secure our faith in a deeper way. I, I don't think that's the case. Here's what I think is the case. Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain to Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, this is our God. Jesus comes, John 1 says, incarnate in the flesh, takes on flesh, leaves the realm of heaven, and humbles himself to come to this earth. And what he does is he shows us who God is. We would say here doctrinally that Jesus was fully man and fully God simultaneously. He limited himself and was able to experience manness, as it were. He was hungry, we see in the scripture. He slept, as we see in the scripture. He cried, as we see in the scripture. But at the same time, somehow, mysteriously, he's not just fully man, he's also fully God. And so when Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, that means... That what we see of Jesus is giving us the picture of who God is. So that's your God. It's a God who's willing and a God who heals. Next slide. Here's another picture. Luke chapter 18. Now they were bringing, look at this. You're going to love this, okay? Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called uh, called them to him saying, let the little children come to me. Come on. Like those of you who have this picture of a distant God or a God who doesn't love children. Who a God that, uh, for a God that doesn't have time for kids. They're ruckus, they're chaos, like we can't handle them. That's not the picture we get here. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then that means as he welcomes children, we should be encouraged of the compassion, of the nurturing side of the character of God, of the depth of the love of, of God's character. Because I guarantee you there's been moments, right, where it's your kids or someone else's where you're just like, I, I just don't want to be around children right now. Have you ever had that moment? Yep, and you're a liar if you didn't raise your hand, right? Because there's this moment, and maybe it was in a supermarket. Come on now, parents. You're walking down the Walmart aisle. You see some kids just going crazy, disobeying their parents, and and you're just like, man, I'm glad my kids aren't like that. As your kids, you're like saying, come on, kids, and they're like grabbing stuff off the the thing, right? It's this constant level of, man, what are kids? Jesus loves them, encouraged by them. This is the picture of your God. Let the children come to me, he says in verse 16. And to not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Finally, verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So when Jesus leaves the realm of heaven, humbles himself, takes on the peace of being fully man, takes on the peace of fully God, he is showing the world who God is. The scripture says, as we study it next week, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, fully God. 
So it's not just the God who holds kids. It's also this God, some of your favorite stories. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there and making a whip of cores, which is really cool. Okay, my kids like to talk about ninjas, okay? Uh, They went to a hibachi grill uh, this past weekend with their aunt and uncle, and they came home, and I was like, uh, so, hey, did you guys have fun this weekend? They're like, yeah, we went to a restaurant with ninjas, you know, because they think like the hibachi grill and all this, right? I was oh, hibachi grill, okay, I get it. Um, And so, like, this image of Jesus making a whip of cords, like, how does he do this? And does does he just, like, you know, muster it up, or does he use his fully, fully God Jesus powers to, you know, whip it up, pun intended. He drove them all out of the temple, look at this, with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And the stories go on and on and on. Story after story, text after text, gospel after gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recording Jesus being the image of the invisible God, showing you and I exactly who our God not looks like, but in character is. Are you guys with me? So as you scowl the the text and as you read and as you indulge, what a beautiful piece that we get to understand and uh, see of the character of God. Next slide. He is the image then of the invisible God. As I've said already, like this is one of the most frustrating pieces for so many of you. Uh, you think to yourself, like, of course I would believe if all of a sudden, we've said this before, if like, you know, the lights started to shimmer and all the candles were blown out and like Jesus just came and, you know, walked on like a plane in the room. And you're like, well, Mark, of course if that happened, I would believe. That's why I want to continue to wrestle with this text. Next slide. If I am new to reading the Bible, where should I start? I get asked this question all the time. If he is the image of the invisible God, and I'm, I'm struggling to read the scripture, and I want to know more about God's character, then where in the world should I begin? So I just want to encourage you. For those of you that, man, you haven't read the scripture in a long time, you're not sure, you know, you're, you're like right now doing the old, like just kind of let, you know, letting God choose, right, where you just open the Bible and it picks a page for you, um, I heard for a long time people encourage uh, uh, new believers to study John. I'm not sure why. Uh, and it's not because I'm anti-John. Like, I love John. John's a great gospel, just like the others. But theologically and doctrinally, I would consider it advanced. Okay. Um, so what I encourage folks to do, and if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I want to I see the character of God in the person of Jesus, I always recommend the gospel of Luke. Okay. Here's why. Uh, Luke's gospel is, uh, is written to a man who's a Roman official named Theophilus. And the gospel is all about Luke's case uh, for Jesus to this Roman official. So both Luke and Acts, written by Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, is essentially his case for Christ. Okay? The other thing I would encourage you to do, I know so, some of you are, are so bent on reading the scripture in a month or something, right? Like you make this goal like a new diet. All right, this month I'm going to read the whole Bible. And, and I understand, like, gaining a perspective. But the problem is, like, when you read Genesis in a day, the retention of that, I'll speak for myself, the retention of that is very low. So, hey, what did you get out of Genesis? I know you, like, you rocked it all day long. Uh, there were 50 chapters, you know. It was awesome. And, like, there was a flood, I think, right? And the, Noah was there and... 
Abraham's, I started singing the song, right? Like, and, and the, like the retention, the retention is very low. What I encourage people to do, start in Luke, take very, very, very small sections of Scripture at a time. There's no hurry. God's not up in heaven saying, oh, you didn't read six verses today? Mm-mm-mm, shame, shame, shame. He, he's not doing that. He's given us the word to teach us about himself. Are you guys with me in that? So every verse is whispering the name of Christ, is bellowing out the character of God. And so take small segments of Scripture and ask yourself, what is this saying about the character of God? And then all of a sudden you'll start to understand more about what Paul is saying in that he's the image of the invisible God. Okay. Next slide. This gets a little bit, a little bit tricky. Um, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, okay. Um, this is dicey, isn't it? The firstborn of all creation. So, so now all of a sudden we have the name of Jesus being connected with um, potentially even being created. If he was the firstborn, how many firstborns here? Just come on. Can I get a woot, right? Okay. So, uh, and some of you are confused by that. Let me explain. The firstborn is the oldest in a family, okay? All right? I, for one, am a, am a firstborn, okay? And so in our language, in our talk, in our understanding, right, the firstborn is, is the first to, to be birthed from our mother's wombs, okay? Um, so, sorry for the image. Is, is, that, <laughs> is that what this is saying about Jesus? In fact, let's say it this way. Is Jesus a created being? Look, what's unbelievable about Colossians 1 in this section is it is so insanely weighty and simultaneously so incredibly encouraging. Is he a created being? When the scripture says he's the firstborn, does that mean he was literally born? Next slide. Here's what John's gospel says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Uh, Back there, please. And the word was God. He was in the, what's the word? He was in the beginning with God. Now, uh, the Greek word for firstborn here is an issue of rank. So to say firstborn means Jesus, not in terms of being created, because John says that he was with God from the beginning. And because he is God, and because all of the Trinity was there from the beginning, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the, wor- uh, heavens and the earth. That word for God is Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. It's plural. They're all there. Okay. The Trinity is a mystery. I understand. Most of you can just explain it with a triangle. It's way deeper than that. The Trinity is a mystery, but Jesus was there. He wasn't an afterthought, as we say all the time. The fall doesn't happen, and then God's like, oh, no, what, what should I do? I didn't see this coming. I, I, I haven't planned for the fall of man. And so, like, here, let me, oh, Jesus. He doesn't do that. To be the firstborn of all creation, it means that he is the first rank. It means that the inheritance of Father God goes through Jesus, is originated from Jesus, and will be sent out to others from Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not an issue of created. It's an issue of Rank and supremacy. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But I know I look out at a whole bunch of folks who are like, yeah, yeah but if, if I could just see him, then everything would change. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Next slide. 
When your faith struggles because you can't see God, which I'm guessing has been you at some point, let's look at a few of these things. Number one, ask God to increase your faith. Um, the approach that I've seen often happen in the church is like, is doubt lashings, I'll call it. Um, someone is struggling in their faith. This was a lot of my background. And they raise their hand and they're like, hey, I'm just not sure about scripture. I'm not sure if all of scripture is true. And they say that in like a youth group setting or something. And what I've witnessed happen, right, is all of a sudden like the youth pastor stands up, what? You, you don't believe that the Bible is true? Like, what are, what are you, communistic? Like, where, where, where did you come from, child? Like, well, what, what's your problem, right? And, and it's like the public lashings of doubt. And so then what happens? You indoctrinate yourself to believe even though in your heart you don't. You get trained to work through your doubt by faking it. Is anybody there tonight? You've been conditioned because so many people have been like, what are you, an idiot? How, how could you not believe this? Like, what's your problem? And, and all of a sudden, the lashings of other believers, because of your doubt, they force you just to fake it. When you're in your heart, you're wrestling and you're struggling. And I'm saying, listen, let all of that go. Stop listening to people and go to the one who can increase your trust. Go to the one who can... Take those doubts and show you the reality of himself. Ask God to increase your faith. And I will tell you, we strive to be a body, a church, that does not extend the doubt lashings. We long to be a church that whether it's a sin struggle or a doubt issue, you can raise your hand and you can say, I do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first words out of our mouth will not be, you're an idiot. They will be, let's journey together. Tell me more about why you think that and where your heart is in that. How can we pray together to ask God to affect that doubt? Oh, he's the image of the invisible God. I'm not so sure, Mark. Ask God to increase your faith. Next slide. View your surroundings through a different lens. Man, if you would just stop, let's just say right now. Come on, let's have a moment together, all right? If you stopped right now and took one second and thought about the hundreds of people that are in this room right now and the hundreds of stories that are represented in this room right now and all of the pain and all of the joy and all of the journeys that are here right now, if you took a second to step back from all of that and stop just seeing your story through your lens, your picture of creation would all of a sudden blow up instead of just when you're on a beach or in a mountain. Listen, when was the last time you were in the grocery store and you were brought to your knees because of the awesome creation that he's made? And you're like, but Cheerios just don't have that effect on me. And what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is maybe they should. It's like the moments when God has softened your heart. And you walk up that grocery store aisle and you see a dad holding his kid or a mom, you know, grabbing her, uh, her, her children in her arms. And all of a sudden you step back and you're like, how is this? This is way more than, than just a, a, a simple scene. This is way more than a Hallmark card. There, 
There's something behind all this. And then you're reminded again of the depth of the creation of God. You're reminded then again of your story. And right there in the grocery store, you begin to weep about the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you start to see things through a different lens, it's like all of a sudden everything shows the character of God. God's over here and God's over here. And somehow in all of this, the Lord is here too. I feel like tonight some of you need an absolute 100% change of perspective. Truly would bless your faith. Remember a time when your faith was assured. Um, so I'm guessing that you've had this moment too. Driving in your car, whatever song's on, okay? Probably Joy FM, and then 1077, and then like, you know. Just kidding. I know we all just listen to Joy FM, right? So Joy FM's on, right? And all of a sudden, in your head, as you're listening to the song, there's been maybe a moment or two in your life where you've thought to yourself, is all of this just made up to help me feel better about my eternity? Like, is all of this, like the the church, our worship of God, the Bible... Is it all just happenstance? Is it all just coincidence? As, is all of it just to like make us feel like there's purpose? And in those moments, as I've even had a few of those in my life, at that precise moment, I ask God to help remind me of times, even in recent past, where my faith was assured. Where I was standing on the solid rock, where I was not wavering, like a wave that's tossed to and fro, where I was just in my faith, trusting fully that God is who God says that he is. And when you remember those times, you remember the seasons that you're going through and the difficulties or the joy that you're experiencing, and you're reminded again that God is faithful. Oh, that's right. Here's how God interwove my story with his. Here's how God humbled me. Here's what God did to encourage me. Tremendous blessing. Fourth, be honest with God about your doubts. Okay. Because you got the, like the youth group lashings or the church lashings, like you feel like God doesn't already see your heart. And so you start to believe that if you hide your doubts from God, he's never going to see them. And because he's omniscient and omnipotent everywhere all the time, knowing your heart, He's like, hey, look, I I know you're struggling to believe the inerrancy of Scripture. I know you're struggling to believe that my son is truly who he said that he was. I know you're struggling understanding why all of these things are working together for my glory. I know you're struggling. Tell me about them. And because of, like, still some of the pictures that you have of the dictator, God doesn't want to hear your pain, all of that kind of stuff, then Christians are just bottling up this doubt. That's why one of the biggest epidemics in our entire culture are young believers who grow up in the church, receive the doubt lashings, are forced to believe, and then they get to college, and then they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What in the world is all this? And the first time the religion professor stands up in a religious class and says, the Bible is hogwash, about 60% true, they're like, yeah, yeah, actually, I bet that's true. 
That's why I love the fact that this is a church that welcomes in college students to continue to, to help their faith be encouraged, amen, right? And so never deny that. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, you know, sometimes I get, you know, I, the fact we got college kids up here just, met, listen, celebrate the fact, celebrate the fact that God has given us so many college students, man, to minister to. Those three are really excited, right? And it just so happens that they're college students, right? They're like, no one else is clapping for us? Okay, right? If I were a college student and I was sitting in here, I would be really discouraged right now, okay? Be honest with God about your doubts. Share those with him. Give those to him. Okay, what a blessing to be able to be honest with God and to ask for his help in that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Next slide. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, this is one of those texts, right, where it just kind of rolls off the tongue. In fact, many would say in the commentating sense that, that this whole lineage of Scripture is a hymn. It's very poetic. It's, you know, very rhythmic. But look at the depth of this. Let me read it again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Next slide. Okay. John chapter 1 says, just to affirm this, all things were made through him. So Jesus, which is what the text is talking about in Colossians 1, is the agent of creation. And both John and Colossians agree, and Hebrews 1 agrees with this as well, in that all things, all things come from him, were created by him. Now, we use some language around here at times talking about um, sovereignty. You'll hear us talk about God's sovereignty. You'll hear us talk about uh, God being Lord over all. I want to make sure all of us understand what that means. Sovereignty is very closely aligned with kingship. So to say that God is sovereign is to say that he is king over all and king in all. And now we're seeing why. Because he made all. He's sovereign because he made it. And so if he had the ability to make it all with his hands, with his voice, just by speaking it, then I think maybe you would agree with me. If he made it all, and if the creator is good, then he's sovereign. He's king over all of his creation. John affirms that, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's one of the most confusing post-comma verses in the scripture, okay? Let me read it again. And without him was not anything made that was made, right? Praise the Lord. Next slide, okay? So if by things, if, 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 if for him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible or invisible, look at this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, now we have some really tough stuff to wrestle with. What are those powers? If he's created it all, now all of a sudden we've got some really tough pieces in his sovereignty. What about the rulers that weren't so great? What about the rulers that that promoted homicide? What about the powers and authorities that seemed evil? Now, does anything in this text confirm 
that God has willingly created evil. Does anything say that? No. What the scripture does make clear is that God in his sovereignty allows Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. And you're like, but but Mark, what do you mean? He, He allows them to eat the fruit? We've talked about this here before. Let me make sure we understand. Could he have grabbed the fruit out of Adam and Eve's hand and prevented sin? Could he have done that? Could he? If he made all and he's sovereign all over all, then 100%, his mighty right arm could have swooped in and he could have said, Adam and Eve, right now I'm going to spare you. I'm going to spare even those to come after it. And for my glory namesake right now, it's better to take this fruit away. He doesn't. The thing we say here, Matthias, is he allowed the thing he hates. He hates sin. He hates evil. He abhors it. He can't be near it. He allows the thing he hates to show us how much he loves in Christ. Jesus, in other words, was always the plan of redemption. So for Jesus to reign supreme, conquer sin and death, and take the bride with him in glory, then sin had to enter the world. God didn't create and make evil. He allowed Adam and Eve to fall so that in doing so, Jesus would save and redeem. Are we together? Now, the rulers and powers and authorities that are talked about here, I think we get a little bit of, a, of, of some help uh, where Paul writes this other places. Let's just start in Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So these powers, and and this is a very tough piece to interpret in this text, but it's assumed by most theologians that these powers are in the angelic realms. Now let me explain why Paul would address this here. Part of the heresy that was going to make its way to Colossae was Gnosticism. And a big piece of Gnosticism, and even some of the New Age stuff I would even contribute in the time of Colossae, was that angels were um, of significant rank, and even at times as much as Jesus. The writer of Hebrews spends an entire section talking about Jesus' supremacy over angels. So it was a common belief and practice in the ancient Near East that angels bore with them, the powers of the heavenly realms bore with them phenomenal rank. Paul's point is, no, Jesus made it all, therefore Jesus is over all. So if you're getting ready to get infiltrated with heresy that's going to knock down the deity of Jesus or say angels in the heavenlies, good or evil, sit equal with the Lord Jesus, this text goes against that. Are we together? Okay. So these aren't just like pleasantries that Paul's writing to establish doctrine. He's addressing issues in Colossae. Okay. The thrones or rulers. Beautiful text. Next slide. Now I want you to address... These three unbelievable underlines. For by him, only by him does he create, and all things were created at the end through him. And what's the word there at the end? For him. In our culture, in this body, and I would say in the bodies that we align with, we celebrate the glory of God. We just sang about it tonight. 
Uh, we believe the scripture is true that we desire everything in our life to be for the glory of God, his exaltation. We want to lift him up. We want to make sure he's praised. We want to diminish ourselves so that he can be seen for who he is as great. That's our desire. Okay. But now all of a sudden when you start looking at the, uh, the creation that he's made as it pertains to his glory, now all of a sudden you and I get a chance to put our money where our mouth is. We say we want the glory of God. We say we want to believe that in all things that he's going to be glorified. And yet we walk all over his creation and take very minimal opportunity to give him glory. In other words, creation is a consistent reminder of the glory of God. If you're ever struggling to get in the scripture, hey, listen, look at creation. That's why Romans 1 says no one is without excuse because they've seen the creation of God. And so in the heart of hearts of that tribe in Africa or wherever that hasn't heard the gospel or hasn't received the Bible, Romans 1 says, listen, they've still seen creation. They've seen the very physical reality, the glory of God as it's been manifested in land and sea and sky and things and animals and people. And sometimes I doubt if God created animals, but I have to believe that he did. Okay. All right. Let me share one more thing on the glory of God. If we really desire our lives to glorify him in all things, then we really believe that he's good. Now, listen, I grew up saying God is good, and the people would say what? Okay, some of you guys, right? Let's try it again. God is good. That's what I said, right? And I would get a little fired up, and then I would say, and all the time. Okay, right? And man, I did that in youth group incessantly. I mean, all the time. You know, we'd be singing songs, God is, and we would just shout it out. If he is a good creator, if he is a good sovereign God, then my friends, the opportunities, please hear this, the opportunities that he has afforded us to celebrate who he is in creation because he's made it all and he's made it all for his own glory are countless. Unfortunately, what I think happens is this. Next slide. We start looking at the other options. Instead of by him, through him, and for him, we say by me, through me, and for me. I'm at the helm of this. I'm the one that's making it happen. Look at all my gifts. I got this job. I pursued this relationship. Now I can celebrate. And yes, my friends, all glory be to me. And, and now I want to strike the nerve in, in the Christian heart. Rarely would we say these things. Okay, In a testimony time, rarely would a believer stand up and say, man, Hey guys, celebrate with me. My whole life is by me and for me and through me and I'm just fired up about it. Like, like rarely would we confess that. Like rare, rarely would we say that. That's why only God knows and you know the intricacies of your heart. Would you say right now by him, through him, or for him or would you say by me, through me, and for me? Everything that's happening around me is for my happiness, is for my joy, is for my encouragement and my pursuits, or is it for the one who's created, who's good, who's sovereign, who's king? The other danger is this. We start doing this. 
Next slide. We start doing by us, through us, and for us. Instead of the individual, now it just becomes the communal. Okay? We get wrapped up in the, um, the Christian fraternity or sorority mentality. Okay? Nothing in general against uh, fraternities or sororities. I'm just saying, like, we become that, that community where really what we're celebrating is what we can do. Look at us. We're an army, like, so many people to serve the Lord, and we start celebrating the works of our hands. Or we start celebrating numerical growth. Or we start celebrating even salvations thinking that we have anything to do with it. I love when God saves because he's like, hey, come along and watch what I do in this person. And open your scripture and share your testimony and watch me change their heart. All of these things happening so no man may boast. The most dangerous though is this. We've talked about this before here, but there was a song written in the uh, 90s. And I'm, I'm so thankful that Brandon, like Brandon's main slant in leading our body in worship is making sure we are singing, proclaiming theological truths. So in other words, he doesn't want like emotional futility in the body. Or he doesn't want to sing like love songs that are really about us. Does that make sense? He wants us to sing the scripture. And it's so modeled by the fact of, of there's so many songs that are just theologically bunked, but one, but one of them, okay, so some of you guys probably have the tattoo, but uh, there was a song in the, in the 90s, and the line was, and above all, talking about on the cross, he was thinking about me. Now, there's some heartstrings in you that really want to believe that. Jesus is all about me. Man, he loves me so much, and he does. Man, he did a work on the cross for me. And yes, technically he did, but above all, it was the glory of the Father. It was an obedience to the Father. It was in calling to the Father. He wasn't praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, oh, oh, people that I'm going to die for, will you help encourage me now? No, he's saying, God, if there's any other way, but if there's not, your will be done. It's for the glory of the Father. The most dangerous in Christendom in you and I's life is thinking that he is working all of this out so that you and I in the end have this treat of a life. Have this unbelievable existence. Listen, I'm going to straight call it what it is. One of the dangerous doctrines in our culture now. Uh, some may call it the health and wealth, the name it, claim it, whatever. Those who say that if you believe, you'll prosper. Oh, I'll prosper all right, but my prospering will be in Christ. And in Christ, I have no promises now in the flesh and the blood. My promises are eternal, not temporal. So I will prosper, oh yes. And I will encounter joy in spite of the trial, but it will, because of, it will be because of who Christ is in me and not because of me. My righteous acts or my righteous deeds. That's the trouble with that. What happens then when all of a sudden... Everything in your life goes downhill. Is it that you lack faith? Is, it, is the onus on you? Then if it is, then you're sovereign. Then you're the one who's holding it all together. I, I just want to collectively repent right now of this kind of mentality. By him, through him, and for me. No. 
God, purge this out of this body right now. God, kill it. God, help us trust. Help us trust that you're a good creator and help us desire your glory more than anything else. Now, uh, this last piece, next slide. Oh my goodness. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now this passage alone has ministered to my heart in a tremendous way and I just, I want to bring you into all this. Okay. If he is before all things, Jesus, then that means he's seen a lot. Agree? If he's fully God, then that means he's seen a lot. Now if you've read the scripture like I have starting in the Old Testament and you, you look at the year's worth of sin the buildup of all kinds of denial, the promises of God that are leading the nation of Israel and their constant rebuttal of it. He's before all things. That means he's seen all kinds of things. That means when Romans 5 talks about knowing that we were sinners, he died, man, it escalates that, doesn't it? He wasn't shielded from all of the wrath that he would take on the cross. Are you guys with me right now? Uh, the, The theological doctrinal term is called propitiation. He takes on the wrath of the world that is deserved for you and I's shoulders. He takes it on himself. He wasn't shielded from it. He was fully God. He knows the year's worth of sin, both past, present, and future, that he would carry on the weight of his shoulders. Knowing all of that, he still goes to the cross. In other words, God wasn't shielding his eyes and then saying, hey son, would you mind doing me a favor? It's kind of gotten bad down there. Oh, it's bad? Seems pretty nice. No, it, you'll see. It's kind of, it's a little bit treacherous. I'm sure you'll make it out all right. Would you mind going down there and allowing yourself to be willingly crucified? Could you do that? No, his eyes aren't shielded. He's fully God. He sees what's going on. He's before all things. And so his crucifixion, I pray right now, is creating a little bit more of thanksgiving in your heart than it did walking in here. It's not just your sin. It's years worth, hundreds of years worth of depravity. So it's significant that he's before all things. And then somebody, what is the insight here? In him all things what? Hold together. Next slide. Uh, This is the story of some of your perceived lives. Uh, Some some of you guys like feel like right now, like life couldn't be any more chaotic. It's the moment, right, where you're like, you're sitting in your cubicle or standing at your workplace or I'm at your school and you feel like the world is just spinning consistently around you and you don't even know what to think or what to do. It's the feeling of um, insurmountable stress and you don't know where to start. It's the sense that um, I have no control of this and because of all those things, it's going to sink me and push me down into depression. The definition of chaos is this, complete disorder and confusion. But my problem is, if the scripture says, in him all things hold together, 
then what I started to ask myself is, then is chaos even a possibility? Now, perceived chaos, craziness, the things that surround our life, but if a good creator who's about his glory and who is sovereign is reigning supreme and he's holding everything together way better than glue, it's built on his character that's faithful when we're faithless, then is there ever really chaos? Like are things ever just spinning out of control? Is the stress really ever so insurmountable that we don't know where to start? Are, are all of these things that we perceive and that stack up on our shoulders real or are we beginning to doubt the fact that he has the whole world in his hands? Somebody now? Come on. Man, that was my favorite song in Sunday school, right? And it was mostly because we had all the motions go along with it, right? He's got the whole world in his hand. I can't remember the motions now, but we had them, you know? You'd like make the world. And then the one day when you scored big time and uh, your Sunday school teacher brought like the little mini globes, like the squish ball globes, right? She's like, and today we shall sing acting as though we're God, you know? And I'm like, what? She like put that little globe in your hand. Yeah, imagine if you were holding the world in your hands, you know? And I was singing it and I was like, man, that'd be tough, you know? It'd be a, it's a tough job, right? Is there really such a thing as chaos at all if he's got the whole world in his hands? This may help us. Next slide. Seriously, this passage has brand new meaning for me. I'm now like connecting all of the dots of Scripture. If Jesus holds everything together, if he is before all things, his eyes weren't shielded, if all this is happening for his glory, then when the psalmist says, be still and know that I'm God, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Because in my stillness, I'm reminded that I can remain still and it doesn't change God. I'm reminded in my stillness that there really is a sovereign king. I'm reminded in my stillness that it's not just my life that he is sovereign over, but everything. So I'm wondering, like, even just right now in this very second, I'm wondering how many of you guys just need to have a moment where you just... God, even right now, I feel so lost. I feel so confused. I'm hurt. He's holding all things together. The promise is what's to come. The promise is his faithfulness now to comfort us and journey with us and empower us. Be still and know that he's God. Next slide. Now, this passage is really where I want to spend our clothes together. Not just has be still and know that I'm God all of a sudden changed my whole mind. This passage has changed my mind about creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So I've never connected all these dots before. I've never been lured by this. But if he's a good creator, if he's sovereign before all things, if he's the image of the invisible God, and if he's holding all things together, then now all of a sudden this passage makes sense. The one who's created can make a new creation. The one who has allowed brokenness can reconcile. If he's a good creator, then that means that the new creation that we are made because of the blood spilt on a cross and an empty tomb that he walks out of, being now made new in uh, in who he is, in his character, it changes everything because he made it. He made it all, and so of course then he can be the author of being a new creation. You are the walking, mobile, moving proof in Christ of a good creator. Of a creative creator. Of a loving God. You in Christ are walking proof of how God is, listen, holding all things together. And you're like, Mark, I'm not a great ambassador for that. That can change tonight. I want to say it this way to summarize all this. Next slide. The creator of all things allows the breaking of his creation and willingly is sacrificed on a created beam. Isn't that interesting and ironic? That the one who created wood then dies on it. In this crazy, seemingly reversal of a role, all of a sudden the God-man is dying on something that he created in order to make all things new for the glory of the Creator. That's tonight what we're here to celebrate. We're here tonight to release the things that we think are about us. We're here tonight to celebrate that in a cross, all things are made new. And so listen, what if tonight we just absolutely celebrate? Like, like what if tonight, right now, the cross became more than an image or more than just a symbol for us? What if tonight, like, the cross was the reminder that in it all creation will be made new and even now is in the process that your heart is being made new? What if tonight all of the stuff that you've held on so tightly, what if even just for a few minutes tonight we celebrated the salvation that we have in Jesus? What if tonight, listen, as he's dying on the cross and everyone is looking on, what if tonight we believed that even in that moment, in the moment of the greatest seemingly duress, he was holding it all together? And so I know tonight that there are some of you here who have forever doubted God have forever struggled following him, living for him, understanding even what he desires of your life. Listen, tonight's a night for you to cry out on his name and to thank him, maybe for the first time in your life, that he can take the brokenness and make it whole again. So tonight's a celebration of the broken that's been made new, amen? Tonight's a celebration of the chaos that we felt, 
But tonight we say, oh no, God, you hold all things together. Tonight's a celebration of the glory of God. So as we take communion tonight, we have this awesome chance, this meal for believers to come up and take a piece of the bread, remembering the words of Jesus as he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me, the good creator, the sovereign one who's before all things. And then he held up the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And hours and hours later, as he bleeds out on the cross, this cup now represents our forgiveness of sins. So church tonight, we celebrate. We repent. We say, God, we're thankful that you hold all things together. Church, respond tonight when you're ready.